Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Algeria to you and also in Afghanistan. Lord Jesus, you know what's going on there, and we're asking that you would have your will and your way done. And Lord, we're asking that you would save many from the Taliban. We ask that you would save many from the Muslim religion, that false religion that proclaims truth but is an error. It's from, from the pit of hell. We ask, God, that you would be pleased to save some from that, from their plight. And we ask, God, that uh, you would help us now as we open up the message, open up your word. We ask, God, that you would help us by your spirit to understand and apply your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the percentage is 59. And this is how much of our country in our history has been associated and engaged in actual war. 59% of our history has been there. Now, contrary to some who believe that our history began, our country began 1619. No, actually, our national birthday is indeed 1776, beginning with the Revolutionary War. And since that time, we've been in active warfare on and off in various times for 145 years and still counting. As we know, war is a tragic part, not only of our own history, of our country, but also the history of our planet. And as we just prayed, I don't have to remind us what's going on in Afghanistan. We, again, we need to pray for this dire situation. Men, women, and children, whether they're Christians or not, are being savagely terrorized and murdered by the Taliban as we speak. Now, we know in our heads that the Lord Jesus, who's king over all, knows this and he sees it. And in his time and in his way, he will take care of it. Aren't you glad about that? Though we know in our head, we need to pray that God makes that reality in our hearts, lest we understand or lest we just kind of think that, that the Lord doesn't care. We need to allow the Lord by His Spirit to affect our thoughts and the conviction in our hearts, lest we grow weary of the sinfulness of our planet and we lose heart. But have you ever wondered how the whole concept, how the whole issue of war itself began? How did the idea enter our minds to create sharp things and later on firearms to do each other in? Did we just invent the idea of deadly weapons to do each other in just out of thin air? Or did we have help? Well, I think we had help. Evil, diabolical help. An ancient story is told about certain creatures referred to as angels and sons of heaven who provided this help. According to the story, these creatures... Evil spirits took on bodies, physical bodies. They had relationships with human women and produced the Nephilim, the giants about that Moses wrote about in Genesis chapter 6. Let me quote for you a description of how evil these creatures were in a popular writing back in the day, a long time ago, a writing called First Enoch. Now, this Enoch, First Enoch, was not actually written by a guy who we know in Enoch, in, in the book of Genesis, who never tasted death. It's not that guy. But there are many people who study 
this kind of thing, these kinds of writings for a living who say, and they've got a lot of proof for it, that the writer of First Enoch ac accurately knew and preserved the worldview of Moses when he wrote Genesis to include his writing about the Nephilim in Genesis. Now, Enoch was written about 300 B.C., and many first century Christians, to include Peter and Jude, knew and read this writing. As a matter of fact, if you read the letter of Jude, you will see some quotes from the book of Enoch right there. So he understood, he knew these things. Now, first, Enoch tells us about one of these spirit beings who took on a physical body. His name was Azale. He taught humans how to make swords and weapons and shields and breastplates. In other words, he equipped and he trained sinful humans to kill one another a lot more efficiently than ever before. And then we took it from there. The writer of 1 Enoch goes on to say that much ungodliness and prostitution happened and humans were led astray and ruined in all their ways. Now, this goes right along with Genesis, where God, when He saw our wickedness, it pained Him deeply in His heart. And by the way, did you know that when God sees wickedness and sin, He never gets used to it? For Him, it's almost as if He sees it for the very first time every time. Imagine the most horrible thing you can ever imagine, seeing it for the very first time, how revolting that is. That is the way God sees sin. It's just Horrendous how God in His mercy doesn't just wipe us off the planet. In Genesis 6-7, we read, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. Can you imagine God saying that? In Genesis 6-11, we find these words. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Violence that came from the evil minds of embodied spirit creatures passed on to humans. Now, I include this here, this little backstory here, because we're going to talk about physical warfare today in our passage. Our passage of Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 26 to 311. We're going to see here somewhat of a change maybe even drastic change, if you might, from where we last left the sons and daughters of Israel experiencing the discipline of Yahweh. Remember how they falsely accused the Lord. They claimed that He hated them and that He was going to give them into the hands of the enemies. And the Lord barred them from entering the land of promise for 40 years. But even when they experienced the discipline of the Lord, God still had work for them to do, even outside the land of promise. And though we're going to talk about physical war here, physical warfare here in our passage, there is far more here than meets the eye than just physical war. See, Israel's opponents are not just humans. They are giants there. The sons of Anakim, the Rephaim, these creatures, the giants, they trace their lineage back to the Nephilim in, in a very real way, back to the very evil spiritual architects of warfare itself. This is what's going on here. 
in, in our passage for today. Today, we are going to encounter what I call the Syog campaign. Now, you look and you see the words, it kind of looks like Syhog, but we don't want to say Syhog because this is Jewish we're talking about, right? We don't want to do that. So we're going to call it the Syog campaign. Moses reminds the people of what they just went through, perhaps even as recently as several weeks prior when he spoke to the people. They had just come out of, these cam- of this campaign, these battles, where they defeated their enemy not just once, but twice. Now, the Syog campaign is indeed a series of two battles, both levied against the Amorites. Moses recalls the first battle in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 26 to 37. It takes place in the land of the Amorites, where Sion resides as its king. The second battle takes place in the territory of Bashan. And we're going to talk about Bashan in a little bit. With Og as his king. Don't you love the name Og? I love that. That's great. I'd love to have a boy named Og. If we had kids, I'd say, we need another, we need another boy named Og. That'd be great. But anyway, with that side, that story is found in Deuteronomy 3, verses 1 to 11. <laughs> I get it. If, if we had another one, if we had another one, <laughs> maybe we could have our kids name one of their boys Og. Okay, that's cool. There you go, yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's turn, though, to Deuteronomy chapter, 20, chapter 2, verse 26 to 29. And we're going to hear Moses retelling the proposal he made to Sion, the Amorite king, to simply pass through his land on the way to the Jordan River. And he said too, as he was recalling this, he said, So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sion, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. A simple request for hospitality. It's like when your neighbor asks you if it's okay for him to cut through your yard on his way to where he's going. Only in this case, it's Moses and about, about a million members of his family asking for permission, right? We'll pay you for food and water. We'll stick to the main road. Just let us pass. Well, common decency would dictate that the Amorites would show hospitality and allow Moses and company to pass through their land. But the Amorites were beyond displaying any decency. See, these were people that the Lord commanded his vassals, Israel, to destroy. Remember again how the Lord gave his people an assignment to wield the sword as judgment upon them because, uh, upon the Amorites because of their sin. God gave them four centuries to repent of their sin, but they chose not to do this. They chose to spend that four centuries, those four centuries, hardening their hearts against the Lord. And as the leadership goes, so goes the moral climate of the nation. And as an aside, 
I hate saying this, but it's my understanding that some of the major players on the world stage, such as Russia and China, consider us now, the U.S., to be irrelevant because of the terrible ineptness of how the withdrawal from Afghanistan is being done. It's being handled by our national leaders in the worst possible way. The truth is that everything rises and falls on leadership. Let's pray for our leaders that they may wake up and repair somehow many of the blunders that this evacuation of our citizens and military members has brought to light. Blunders like this, for example, the claim that we are successfully negotiating with the Taliban and they are assisting us to bring our people home. I heard this. Or, or that we don't have the capabilities to get our people out of there. I heard that too. Maybe you did as well. These and a number of other ridiculous statements were made on national news. It's ridiculous. But we got to go on. Anyway. But the hard-heartedness of the Amorites showed itself in full response to Moses' proposal in verses 30 to 32. But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sion and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sion came out against us, he and all his people, to battle with Jahaz. So what happened? Sion not only rebuffed Moses' kind reply, request for hospitality, but he overreacted just a wee bit, you think? The entire nation came out against Israel. Now, his overreaction is how we can describe things on a human level. But what was the divine assessment as Moses recalled the story? It was that the Lord hardened the king's heart. His heart was very hard, and perhaps he had a bunch of tyranny over his people because he made all of his people come out and attack the Israelites. And so the battle of Jahaz began. And how interesting to note here, though, that Moses did not begin the fight. His request was a friendly gesture to receive hospitality from the Amorites. Moses did not know how Sion was going to react. And, you know, I think about us as Christians who know Christ as our Lord and Savior, how we operate in this world and how the world expects Christians to behave. You know, we're not looking for a fight, are we? <laughs> At least most of us aren't looking for a fight. We as followers of Jesus understand that we live in the midst of hostile territory in our culture, or at least we say we understand. But how often do we live our lives with our spiritual guards down, and then we yield to the temptation to hear and respond to the siren song of the world and being confronted by many enemies that we have within our culture? But the point is, like Moses and the Israelites we do want to get along with those around us, but we can't be kind enough 
We can't be nice enough. When the world sees that we don't go along with them, at every point, we must agree with them, we must embrace them. What do they do? They have a tendency to go to war with us. And when they do, what is to be our response? Christ-like warrior response. I'll explain what that means in a minute, okay? We are to confront our enemies in our culture in a ruthless manner. You realize, my friends, that the enemies of the gospel attempt to use many of the cultural issues in our day to destroy the church? Think with me about this. All the cultural issues of our day. For example, Islam is now taking center stage again because of what's going on in Afghanistan. True Christians will never say Allah and Yahweh are the same. Never. But the culture tells us that we are the haters if we don't accept that. The COVID-19 vaccine issue is also aimed at destroying the church. We see it being a divisive issue. And even in the media, how many times have we heard that it's the fault of evangelicals, evangelicals who just happen to be white, that it's our fault that we're in the predicament that we're in. For it is evangelicals who are the most vaccine hesitant, they will tell us. If they would just get the jab, we can go back to normal, is what they say. I've heard that over and over again. Maybe you have too. Critical race theory seeks to destroy the church. CRT is absolutely and thoroughly Marxist to the core. Marxism, as we know, is a foundation upon which socialism and communism rest and stand upon. Marxism seeks to destroy the church with its militant atheism. The homosexual agenda complete with transgenderism, and all that goes with it seeks to destroy the church. They tell us that those who oppose homosexuals and transgenders are the haters, and they must be silenced or disappeared from the social media, and some would even say, or even worse. Now, I can go on, and maybe you can too, but the culture and those who control the cultural levers of power have it out for true Christians. But tragically, in the name of tolerance and the world's definition of love, many who name the name of Christ have already embraced one or more of these things. Isn't that tragic? We've got to pray for those who are walking away and apostatizing from the church. But what is our response to be for all of this? A loving, militant sharing of the gospel. Militant sharing of the gospel. What I mean by that is that we are to take full advantage of every opportunity to share the gospel to people who so desperately need it. Because the gospel is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's what Paul said in Romans 1.16. Paul also tells us in Ephesians 6.12 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In short, people are not our enemy. Got to make that clear. People aren't the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. They may be willing victims, but they're victims of the enemy. I've heard it said, 
that if we can see it, it ain't our enemy. How we need to engage the real enemy. How we need to be bold in, sh- in seeking to share the gospel with those who need to be set free from their own self-destruction and prayerfully getting them ready to stand before our king on that day. So we engage in spiritual warfare facing our enemy. We do that. What was Israel's response? Engaging in physical warfare and facing their enemy. Let's look at Deuteronomy 2, 33 to 37. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people, and we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities we captured from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, for that is to all the banks of the river Jabbok and to the cities of the hill country, whatever our Lord had forbidden us. In a word, Sion started it. Israel finished it. Absolutely devastated them. Not one person was left alive. But they took the animals, though. They left them alive. As we're going to see next week, some of the Israelites actually took possession of the cities, and they began to live in them. So now you tell me, what does Israel's absolute devastation to the Amorites sound like to you? Sounds like genocide to me. Everybody killed. Why? I think there's two reasons. First of all, number one, the most important, the Lord commanded this to happen, commanded them to judge them that severely. Remember last week when the Lord told Moses that he was going to work and work through the Israelites in such a way that anybody would think twice, three times, or even more before they would begin to think about tangling with Israel. He described it this way in Deuteronomy 2, 25. He said, this day, I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. And right here was a very good illustration of what's going to happen if you mess with Israel. And once again, the message would have been clear or should have been clear that the nations around them about them was to not tangle with the God of Israel. That's the issue. Not Israel per se, but it's the God of Israel that they needed not to confront. Second, God commanded his people to destroy everybody as a preventative measure to keep Israel from adopting wicked practices of the nation they defeated. They were in the the bonds of all kinds of wicked religious practices. Later on in Deuteronomy, we're going to revisit this, and God is going to actually say through Moses of how they are to treat the people that they go and to attack. In short, the Israelites were Yahweh's people, and God wants a people holy unto himself. He does not want them to depart from him committing spiritual adultery. 
And that's what idolatry is. It is spiritual adultery. One of the major themes throughout Deuteronomy is the Lord's abundant warnings and severe consequences about His people committing idolatry. As it was then, so it is now. God's people, followers of the Lord Jesus, are not to entertain rivals in our followership. We are to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. Recall what the Lord told those who were thinking about taking Him up on His offer to follow Him as His disciples. In Luke 14, He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come to me cannot be my disciple. And let's throw in Luke 14, 33 in for good measure, shall we? Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. No rivals is what he's saying. And the bottom line here, both with Yahweh's command to Israel and Christ's command to all who would come after him is simply this. God does not play. God does not want to allow his people, God will not allow his people to pledge allegiance to anything or anyone else besides him and remain his people. We cannot have divided hearts when it comes to following the Lord. That's Christ's command to us. And so I have a question for all of us this morning and an invitation. Where are you? Where am I in your followership of the Lord? How many rivals have you set up in your heart or have allowed to remain there since you began to follow Him? Let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that the king is okay with that. And I think now, though, would be a good time for us to take a moment and ask the Lord to search our hearts and ask Him to reveal to us in no uncertain terms anything or anyone who is vying and what is vying for our affection. See, it's much better for Him to examine us now and for ask Him to examine us now than for us to hear a horrendous examination and a pronouncement on the day of judgment. Would you agree? And so let's just take a moment now and let's ask Him to search us by His Spirit in the quiet. Then after a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer and then together we're going to recite 1 John 1, 9 as assurance that the Lord's given us His promise that if we confess, He forgives. So let's just take a moment now and ask the Lord. Father, in this holy moment, this moment we, when we are asking you to reveal to us the idols in our own life, the things that we have set up that we secretly play with, things that people don't know about, or they're so brazen that people do know about. And we claim to follow you as well. Lord, we see your disdain for your people to follow after other things and claim to follow you and claim to know you. 
Lord, we do not want to be that kind of people. We want to be people that follow you only. Follow you wholeheartedly. And Lord, I'm sure that all of us right now, we're thinking of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, for example, who just, they're paying the price because they're following you. There is no wiggle room for them. But yet we're here, Lord. And we're asking you now that by your spirit that you would help us to put aside these things that would distract us, these things that we have chosen to put up in our lives. May we put them down. May we destroy them. May we, like Moses did, ground it to powder and get rid of it. May we repent truly, Lord. We thank you for your forgiveness. And now as we recite 1 John 1, 9 as an assurance for the Lord's forgiveness. Let's recite together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. So now on to the second battle of the operation, second operation, I should say, of the Syog campaign. It's the battle Edri facing the Amorite king Og and his people. Again, all his people. And I can imagine how encouraged the Israelite warriors were at this point, having just come off a decisive victory over Sion in the land of the Amorites. Let's read Moses' account of it in Deuteronomy 3, 1 to 7. And we turned and went up the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edri. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sion, the king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them, 60 cities. The whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, beside very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sion, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. What a slaughter! No one left in the entire region of Bashan. Og gone. The people of Og killed 60 cities, now empty. Nobody there. How eerie would that be? Though difficult to read it, this is what the Lord commanded His people. And the Syog campaign is now complete. The victory is won. But there's much more to this victory than meets the eye, far more. Let's read verses 8 to 11 to begin to catch a glimpse of, in what Mike Heiser's words are, the unseen realm. 
So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Mount Hermon Syrian, and the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the Tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Salakah and Edri, cities in the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, the king of the Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length. Four cubits was its breadth, according to the common cubit. Pretty big guy, that Og. So who was Og, besides having a weird name? He was the lone survivor of the Rephaim in the region of Bashan. Now, where have we heard the, the term Rephaim before? In chapter 2. There was also this weird name called Anakim in chapter 2 as well. And there's more to that. If we look back at the actual scary spy story, we notice the name at Nephilim. And where we heard Nephilim before in Genesis chapter 6. So what's going on here? A lot. For the Nephilim, the Anakim, and the Rephaim are all related. In short, they are the direct descendants of the union of the sons of God and daughters of men. These are literally spawn of evil. Now, we're going to come back to them in a moment, so hold on to that thought. Where did Og live? He lived in Bashan. And what's important about this region? In the minds of Moses and the people of the day, it was well known that this land was thoroughly associated with evil. As Heiser points out in his book called Reversing Hermon, Bashan was associated with the underworld. It was the Canaanite hell, so to speak. Of course, the land of promise was indeed what we would call Canaan. But they also believed that the Rephaim themselves were connected with the realm of the dead, as Heiser talks about here. So what do we have here? Let's kind of sum it up. Far more than mere human battles. On planet Earth, the Sion campaign, we have here sworn human and spiritual enemies of God. Spawn of evil, living in ground zero of evil. And the Lord commanded His people to engage in warfare to get rid of them. Now, there's a whole lot more we could say about this. But let's rejoice that God gave His people strength to profoundly defeat foes that were far more powerful than them. And after all, Sion in the land of the Amorites were absolutely hardened in their sin, and they needed judgment. And Og was indeed a Rephaim, a spawn of evil itself, living in the region known as Canaanite hell. So what can we take away from here, from this passage? Moses' account of the Siog campaign. First and foremost, we can remember how the next generation of Israelite warriors got there. It was because of their disobedience. Remember the previous generation, 40 years. They should have been in the land for 40 years, enjoying it. But they didn't because of their fear, because of their disobedience. But even though the Lord gave them a massive timeout, and parents, you understand what that means for your kids, right? Timeout. He had work for them to do. The Lord did. Israel's rebellion did not take God by surprise. 
He's not put them on the shelf. He had no plan B. And when it seemed as though God wasn't working, he was working. And this led them to eventually take on the evil giants in the land, Bashan. So we can say, praise the Lord that Yahweh's vassals finally understood the truth that the battle belongs to the Lord. He gave them the inner courage and the outer strength to defeat the enemies. And by the way, he gave them the same thing, offered them the same thing 40 years prior, but they didn't take it. And as with Israel, so with us. How long does it take for God's people to wake up and just believe him? I know a man who was raised in a Christian home. He began to follow Christ at an early age. He served his country honorably as a military member. And after he separated from the military, he went to school and earned a master's degree in Christian ministry. He got married and set out to rear his family in the ways of the Lord. Seemed pretty good so far. But there was a problem with his inner life. See, he sometimes somehow tried to prove that he had what it took to serve the Lord without tapping into the strength that God provides. He knew the Word of God, or at least he knew of its existence. But for him, Holy Scripture was merely a text on a page. For him, it carried no power. And because he tried to serve the Lord with his own resources, guess what his enemies did? Ate his lunch and his breakfast and dinner besides. His marriage began to be in trouble. His wife didn't trust him. Family devotions were non-existent. But one day, the Lord shook him awake. Finally, he began to understand that God's word is not mere text on a page. It was a thing of life to him. It, could, it took God to do this. And I'm reminded of the comment of the writer of the Hebrews concerning the Word of God in Hebrews 4.12. He says, For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And he began to read and then apply the Scripture to his life. And after he had done this for a time, he commented to me that the more he reads and takes in Scripture, the more he wants to take in Scripture. Hallelujah, isn't that wonderful? But my point is that with many of God's sons and daughters, though it takes a while, we eventually get there. Praise God. God is in no hurry. That's the point. He's patient with us. He's kind to us. And he takes seriously our declaration of allegiance to him. Brother, thank you for talking about allegiance today. When we repent and believe the gospel, the Lord, by His grace, mercy, and power, He begins to work. And He won't stop until He's done, and we look like Jesus. Ours is to follow, and God will do the transforming. It's God's goal for every follower of Christ to look just like Jesus in their character. And He will bring all kinds of things into our lives to make sure that happens. Can anybody resonate with that? Romans 8, 28 and 29 are very familiar verses, but let's review them again just to get a reminder of all this. And we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good. Not that all things are good, right? They work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, get this, He also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of His Son in order He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Everything. Everything. And let me emphasize, everything that comes into your life and my life is for the purpose that we will look like Christ when He's done with us. It took the Lord's working with His vassals to get them to the place of usefulness to accomplish His mission. The Lord never gave up on them. He patiently worked with them, and the Lord strengthened them that they might conquer the enemy and get the victory. Again, victory over enemies much stronger than they. And as a result of these victories, God made them ready then for even greater victories because they were getting ready to go into the land and clean up the mess that's in there too. See, in Yahweh's land, sacred space, there were more Amorites to be defeated and there were more giants to be defeated there as well. And Joshua would lead them after they crossed the Jordan later on, full of courage and assurance that indeed the Lord would give them the victory and defeat the human and the spiritual enemies in Yahweh's land. And the second lesson we can take from the Syed campaign is how God operates. See, God's way of operation is always through our cooperation. See, we are not robots, are we? We work together with the Lord in accomplishing His will for us, that He might be glorified. And speaking of glorified, Jesus told us, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And so what? Prove to be my disciples. It's in fruit bearing. It's showing outwardly that the Lord is in our lives is how we prove we're His disciples. We just don't say it. There's got to be some evidence. See, every time that God gives us a command, and by the way, how many commands are there in Scripture? A whole lot of commands of Scripture. And what that is, every time God gives us a command in Scripture, that means by definition, He expects us to exercise our will to make it come about. And I'm going to say this as strongly as I can. I hear this so often, it just, it irks me, it angers me. Well, we can't really go on with the Lord and we really can't be so hard-nosed about obedience because that's, that's being legalistic and that's work salvation. Let me say this as, as strongly as I can. Faithful obedience is not legalism. It's not legalism. It's not adding works to salvation. It is simply the way that we show our love for our Lord. This is the way Jesus told us. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If we do these things, he says, you show me that you love me. The Lord through his apostles commanded us to put forth the effort to obey him. Let me give you just two reminders, and they're going to be on the screen, and follow along simply as I read them. I'm not going to give any comment. They speak for themselves. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 says, Him we proclaim, 
we proclaim. We are warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul goes on to say, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, you are to work out your own salvation. Exercise it, basically. And do this with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We do these things. It is not legalism to obey the Lord. God does not put us on the sidelines as Christians and then tells us, in essence, now watch me work. No. What he does is he tells us to work. He works through us, yes, but it is we who put forth the effort by the strength he supplies. And this is in part measure why you and I will stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says, so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And no wonder Paul follows that up with this comment. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Paul wasn't anticipating something that this is going to be a a great and glorious thing with with rainbows and unicorns standing before the Lord. This is going to be a very terrifying time for him. And Paul thought that. (laughs) How much more do we need to be thinking about that? And so now we come full circle. We are in a military campaign. But unlike our country where it's been declared war for about half the time in our history, we as God's people have been in the battle since the first day we began to follow Christ. Our personal enemies are what the Lord himself was tempted with, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, of course, Jesus didn't have sinful flesh. He still had flesh, but it wasn't sinful. And the the enemy tempted him in all these areas that we are so often tempted in. And guess what happened with him? He never once yielded. He is our example, and he is the one that can give us the strength. And since there's no getting away from this truth that we are all in the battle, may we see ourselves as the soldiers the Lord declared us to be. In the... And in what was most likely the last letter that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, Timothy's mentor, Paul, shared some profound truth here. And after all, if you know that your death is right around the corner, you don't play trivial pursuit, do you? What you are going to tell the people standing right in front of you, those that you love, you're going to share with them the deepest parts of your heart. And this is what Paul did in 2 Timothy. Hear then some of Paul's last words to his mentee in 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. He said, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Allow me to pose a couple more questions as we finish the message today. How do you see yourself? as a follower of Christ. And let me make that distinction because if you're not a follower of Christ, you're not even in the battle, right? You're already taken prisoner of war. The enemy is, you're in the enemy's camp. 
But if you are a follower of Christ, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself living at ease in the camp, in the rear echelon? And by the way, in the military, oftentimes the people who are in the rear echelon are the ones who complain the worst about stuff, all kinds of stuff. Or do you see yourself on the front lines engaging the enemy? Paul invited Timothy to share in suffering. What would your suffering for Christ look like in your world, in your life? As we know, persecution is coming, even in Afghanistan. Persecution has already come to our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, in Algeria. And even more importantly, all of us will give an account to the Lord on that day. Let's be busy about the Lord's business of training ourselves for godliness, getting to know Him better through His Word and exercising the disciplines of a life of a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the challenging word. Thank you, Lord, for giving your people the strength and the inner courage to attack the very ones who were, they were, uh, earlier they were so afraid of before. Lord, you gave them a decisive victory because your people decided to believe you and to obey you. Lord, I pray that in our pampered culture, in our even, even our church Christian pampered culture, that we would forget all that. That, Lord, we would go after you as a good soldier of Christ. Lord Jesus, that we would follow you wherever you lead us. Lord, that, that nothing would hinder us from doing so. Lord Jesus, you never commanded your people to do something that you were not willing to do. You told us to go and give our lives. Lord Jesus, you gave your life. And Lord, we know it's not just us following you as an example. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who empowers us to do these things. And even more importantly, Lord, thank you for giving us our new identity. Lord, it's, it's because you have changed us is why we even want to do these things. So, Lord, I pray that we would be pleasing to you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to, to follow you more closely now more than ever before. Prepare us for what lies ahead as we go from day to day, making decision, small decision after another small decision. As we get ready, Lord, because sometimes we may have to make big decisions to follow you, to show you that we love you. And that big decision sometimes may even cost us our lives. Help us, Lord, to be willing to lay them down for you because you have laid your life down for us. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Lord, now for our time of giving. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to give with a heart that's truly overflowing for what you've done for us. I thank you, Lord, also for our time of singing. Now, help us to remember, Lord, that our brothers and sisters around the world in many places cannot even lift their voices in song to you. Help us, Lord, to take advantage of what you've given us to us. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name.